Secure Enthusiasts Club podcast. This week, behind the scenes at Browns Lane with the man in charge of quality control at Jaguar. JECpodcast.com Hello, Wayne Scott with you and welcome to episode 77 of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Hope you're well. Hope you're enjoying the summer 2022, the season for getting our Jaguars out and about and on the road. And I was out and about and on the road last weekend with what was the next feature in the JEC Tracksport programme of events this year. We're up in North Yorkshire at Harewood Hill Climb, the longest hill climb track in the country. And it was awesome. The sun was shining. We were basking in the beautiful countryside. We had amazing views, red kites circling overhead, and over 80 Jaguars screaming round the track, their owners having the best fun ever. And I knew that because I could see the smiles from the top of the hill. You can see the full report on that, by the way, at jc.org.uk in the news pages there, also through Friday Spotlight. And there'll be lots of pictures in Jaguar Enthusiast magazine in the August edition as well. It was a great day out and another fantastic fixture in the JEC Tracksport programme of events that takes motorsport to you and makes all of us into racing drivers just for that one fleeting moment. We all get to enjoy using our cars out on track, learning some skills and of course getting scared as well because there were passenger rides as ever with Jack Robinson from Swallows Racing as well who was doing passenger rides in his XJ40 race car throughout the day and I have to say I got in the passenger seat and was very impressed with the grip on his XJ40 the noise is incredible the speed is brilliant but I think the biggest surprise for me over the weekend at Harewood Hill Climb was my lap in an I-Pace yes an electric vehicle up the hill was definitely by far the fastest vehicle there and I include all of the race machinery in that as well it is amazing that fresh out of the factory fresh out of the showroom the Jaguar I-Pace absolutely tears up circuits and hill climbs alike the performance the grip the center of gravity was second to none for me as a petrol head kind of depressingly brilliant i would say that's the best way i can describe it but jaguar once again surprising and impressing with the eye pace and the first opportunity i've had to get one out on track and enjoy it at its full potential so brilliant that's what jaguar track days are all about with the jaguar enthusiast club and jc track sport it's about experiencing our cars your cars older cars as well from jaguar's history we had a massive spread throughout the eras right the way from a really early xk120 in beautiful condition there were three c-type replicas there as well and loads of others xj6s x300s x350s they were all on the hill a number of f-types as well so if you weren't driving a jaguar that day it was certainly great fun to sit there and watch all the same so a brilliant day the next track sport event will be in october and it will be at castle coombs so you can find all the details on that jc.org.uk just click on the events button there get yourself booked in if you fancy lapping castle coombe this coming october 
And I'll be back on the road very soon because we are off to Bista Heritage at the end of July to give our young enthusiasts the driving experience of a lifetime. It is the Jaguar Enthusiast Club Driving Experience Day at Bista Heritage. It's taking place on July the 30th. And if you've got a full UK license and you're under 35, you can drive a whole load of amazing Jaguars for the day on the track at Bista. And you'll be supervised by the Swallows Racing Team. You'll be getting the opportunity to drive things like the XJ Supersport with 500 brake horsepower, some limited edition XKs as well, like the Palmer Sport cars that are boasting 600 horsepower, and some historic Jaguars as well. It's all happening, as I say, at Bista. And we have filled enough places for the youngsters now. So if you fancy giving it a go, and you might be slightly more mature in age, then you can join us as well. You can find all the details at jc.org.uk. It's now open to all, and you can book yourself on a driving experience day with a Jaguar Enthusiast Club online. That's for July the 30th at Bista Heritage. Then it's back up to Yorkshire, of course, for the Summer Jaguar Festival at Newby Hall, a stunning location for what is going to be a stunning day, because don't forget, we're in the centenary year here of Jaguar. It started in 1922 with the foundation of Swallow Sidecars. We're celebrating the centenary of that all year, and it starts at the Summer Jaguar Festival for us at Newby Hall, where we won't be guiding you through the history of Jaguar with cars behind velvet ropes. No, no, no. Far more exciting than that, we've got the Moving Motor Show for Newby Hall where we're going to be seeing some key icons from Jaguar's history out and about on the roads coming past your very toes on our Moving Motor Show strip at the Summer Jaguar Festival, all in the grounds of Newby Hall and all included in your ticket. And we're going to be joined not just by some of the members' cars from the Jaguar Enthusiast Club, your car will be the star, but also mixed amongst them will be some absolute icons courtesy of the Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust who have dusted off some of their museum cars and they'll be joining us with cars representing every era of Jaguar from the last 100 years. You've got to join us for this. We're going to have the big TV. We're going to be interviewing Michael Quinn. We're also going to be having Ian Cooling along, who's going to be doing a Jaguar Automobilia Roadshow, which is kind of like Antiques Roadshow off the telly, but with Jaguar stuff. So get up in the loft, get that valuable stuff down, have a route through the garage and the sheds. And if we can give you some information on the stuff you've brought, that's what it's all about. Ian Cooling at Summer Jaguar Festival. So join us, get your tickets now at jc.org.uk forward slash festival and I'll see you there. Now, behind the scenes we go to Browns Lane in Coventry in 1980 to share the stories and memories of one David Rooney who worked in quality control at Jaguar in the engineering department. Let's find out more. David Rooney is next. Well, on this week's Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, we're very excited to have an ex-employee of Jaguar and someone who worked in quality development for Jaguar for some 24 years, between 1980 and 2004. So a big warm welcome to the podcast, to David Rooney. Hi, David. Hi, Wayne. Thanks very much for having me. 
It's great to have you on. And before we get to your time at Jaguar, let's just go right the way back to the very beginning. And you were a car enthusiast as a child, weren't you? It was in the DNA. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the interesting thing is that my dad was actually not very, <laughs> not very good on the mechanics, but my granddad on my mother's side, he was into televisions at that time. He could radios motorbikes and cars so maybe I got it from him when I was four and five years old uh, so my mum told me I could tell from the sound of um, the Royal Mail postal delivery van before it came I could hear this engine and I would say the um, the postmarkers coming with some parcels so it was a really early age I must have had the natural instinct for uh, you know I was really into cars and Yes, I could hear different sounds of exhaust and say, yes, the postmaster's coming, Mum. <laughs> that's, that's what used to happen. You went on, of course, to do mechanical engineering at university and then into a career in the motor industry, didn't you? And before you arrived at Jaguar, you worked for Lucas, but also for Standard Triumph as well. Yeah, I mean, I always wanted to go in the motor industry. So even from those uh, young days from you know four or five upwards um, you know we used to collect number plates you used to see I remember seeing a Triumph held in 1958 before it was launched uh, it must have been a development car that was in our village up in Cumbria so I always wanted to be involved in the car now um, when I graduated from Aston University with a degree in mechanical engineering had offers from Gerlin Brakes and Joseph Lucas, who were big at the time. Now, I didn't want to go into the brakes, but Lucas sounded a bit more interesting. And uh, they had a big market, of course, because all the cars were British then. I think they said that 95% of the British market, because the Japanese hadn't made any inroads at that point. Mm. So I went to work for Lucas as a graduate trainee. And they were very good in terms of showing you around different departments. Um, because I had done a full-time course, hadn't been in industry, and uh, it wasn't a sandwich course, which I think probably was, a, was probably the better thing to do. But nevertheless, Lucas gave us two years or so of going around all the different departments, learning about different things, which was good. Mm. And, um, you know, I worked in engineering and design on distributors at the time, uh, went into sales, went um, to one of the factories down the back street in Aston where they used to do the cyclometer. If you know what that is, a little mileometer they used to do. Lucas did all sorts of different things. Mm -hmm. But the interesting one for me was um, service of Great Hampton Street. I was based at the, um, the main Lucas uh, uh, office, which was in King Street, in Birmingham, but Hampton Street was the service and product investigation side of it, and I did a project there on um, basically what Lucas were doing at that time. You had the minis and so on with transverse engines, lots of tracking um, and misfiring because of the transverse engine, and they came out with this blue alkyd material not meant to track, and uh, we did some trials on that. They gave me a distributor and a coil for my car at the time. And, um, you know, that was, an, that was a great interest for me. But 
um, really I wanted to be involved in the car rather than just components and I managed to get a job down at what was called Triumph Motors at the time in the early 70s and later to become Rover Triumph mm -hmm. and that was in rig test engineering which you know was becoming useful later on when I joined Jaguar. You were starting to get into quality control even then, weren't you? Yeah, I mean, to be fair, the, it, it was about reliability, quality, and re, it was reliability. Um, but it, it wasn't on the things like the the engine, which we had lots of problems with. It was more to do with the components or, you know, door closing, electric switches, you know, repeated cycling. We used to do the aircon compressor for Rover, um, cycling that. And bespoke rigs, which would cycle suspension components and so on. And, and Triumph really was quite a leader in that. When I came to Jaguar, I realised Triumph were actually a long way ahead of uh, Jaguar in terms of testing of components. Wow. Now, what we used was we cycled these to um, a certain number of cycles, auto failure, and you could do a Weibull analysis to try and predict the reliability um, of components, if you like. And uh, later on, if we talk about Jaguar, when I come, well, you'll realise they didn't seem to do those sort of things. So, yes, it was to do with the reliability, life, if you like, of, of the components. And then I moved on to um, service, what was called JRT service in the mid-70s, um, upon the Birmingham Road at Allsley. Mm -hmm. And I enjoyed that. Um, but yes, looking after the TR7 engines, the stag engines and so on, they were costing us well, the warranty. I think it ran into millions because of overheating. And um, I did actually go to Germany to help them rebuild an engine that had kept overheating. And uh, to be fair, when it was built properly, they did come back to us and say, well, it's never over overheated since. So... You know, there's always the talk now of stag and TL7 engines. If they're built properly, um, you know, maybe they don't overheat. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, I'd moved up to um, service at that point. And, of course, that building and, um, at Owlsley there is still there to this day and owned by a company called HPL now who are still in the automotive sector. They do lots of prototyping and uh, sort of future-looking stuff in the automotive industry. But that old building and it's like a, a sort of art deco front to it isn't it on birmingham road that's there right. at Osley. yeah um, yeah that's, stunning yeah building. that's where we were um i'd always admired the jag of course with e-types when i was at school of course we uh, i was on the school bus and the red e-type pastors god we, we just wondered you know i thought god what is that thing and um, yeah i've always had an affinity to jaguar and um yeah, it was great that I was chosen to um, join in uh, early 1980, if you like. And you literally answered an advert, didn't you, that you'd seen in the press um, advertising this position. So there you were in, a, in an interview, I suppose, for your dream job at Jaguar. Tell us about that interview and who was there, who interviewed you and how did it go? <laughs> well, yeah, it was a big interview. The, the, the thing is, they were setting up, um, God knows what Jaguar did beforehand, but they were setting up uh, the group quality or company quality as we called it in Rover Tribe was called group quality but it oversaw all of the plant quality we had remit to you know oversee all of that anyway hmm. 
went up for the interview. We had David Fielder, who was the quality, just been made quality director. So, you know, they were just starting to build up that um, department, still small. And um, there was also the plant quality uh, or company quality engineering managers there. One was um, a guy called Roger Cooper from Bradford. Uh, another guy who was the guy who took me on, a great gentleman, really, uh, Bob Close. And um, he worked uh, for Fielded at Brown's Lane, and he was the one that selected me. Good for me. <laughs> I don't know if he must have seen something. Um, we also had Keith Cambridge because we were looking for people at the limousine as well. We, and again, David Fielding in company quality, he had this remit over down the limousine build because we were building a very small number down at Brown's Line then. Uh, he had press cars which was Peter Tyler, special vehicle prep. He had the plant, which was Casabrom, the quality uh, managers from there, Radford, which was Roddy Cooper, and as I say, Bob Close. And I think, from memory, Jonathan Haynes, who was doing SQI at the time, he may have popped in. Maybe he didn't. Maybe he didn't fancy me for the job, but anyway. Uh, yeah, there was about five or six, plus two people from personnel. So... Um, I think I just, uh, you know, when you say that, you just talk as you, as you normally do, what you've done and so on. And um, as I say, I was fortunate enough that uh, Bob Clowns, uh, working at Brownsley, thought uh, I was worth a punt. And so he took me on in January 1980. Brilliant. And you were based at Browns Lane for those entire 24 years, or did you move around a bit? Yeah, I was... My base was really Brown's Lane, but of course I covered Radford. Um, we sometimes had to go up to, uh, you know, because we covered, we went we went to those places, Castle Brom, Radford. And when we had Hylewood, I was up at Hylewood four days a week. Mm-hmm. So along the base, yes, it was Brown's Lane all that time. Um, because we had the remit over all the plants, whenever we were, you know, building cars, then I did travel out to those um, different factories, if you like. And you did work with some big names, didn't you? Some celebrities, as they're considered now, the likes of Jonathan Haynes, as you mentioned, uh, the late Jim Randall, of course, Norman Jewis, who we missed dearly, and, and Peter Taylor. These names from Jaguar history were the people that you worked with and alongside every day, yeah. weren't they? Yeah, I mean, just going back to when I started in January 1980, and it was typical of Jaguar, you know, because everything was on a shoestring. Uh, David Fielding was in a poky little office with Norman Dewis and Jim Randall in the where, where the engine engineering building was, right? That was separate from what we call the GEC block. So that's where they were initially. Hmm. Now... David Fielder, because he then had started to build up the department, managed to get the boardroom in what we call the GEC block. But it's the old GEC building, and he used the boardroom, and that's where we were based. Um, so, um, coming back to who I worked with, uh, I would go out in cars with, obviously, David Fielder. He was a hands-on engineer, and, and what it's worth noting that when I started, you still had the remnants, let me say, of Sir William's engineering, top engineers, 
Mm. Now Fielding had been an apprentice in the 50s, but he was a hands-on engineer. He would have bits of suspension in the in the boardroom looking at them and working on them, you know, axles and so on. Um, that's the way he worked. Jim Randall would go out in cars with me. Travis Chris, the group chief engineer, he would go out in cars with me. So they were all hands-on. And what was interesting is we would take cars out um, and make decisions there and then. You know, we, when Ford took us over in 89, 90, it was a lot more difficult to get things done, you know. Mm-hmm. You had to go through, you know, various levels of management plus Dearborn. But in those early days, in the 1980s, you know, it was a good time to work. And it was, um, you know, the company was agile, if you like. We could, as I say, and we made decisions, you know, on the spot. So we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And that's what we did. And like I say, yeah, I went out in cars with, uh, all of those people, yeah. It's interesting point you make there because it's sort of counter to the impression that those of us looking back through history or looking in from the outside have of that BL conglomerate days, really. You know, it, it seemed to be a big, um, unwieldy monster of a company. But actually, as Jaguar, you were operating very much as you were, which was a relatively small car manufacturer in the grand scheme of things. Did, did it feel like a small company, yeah. despite the fact you were still yeah. part of BL? Yeah, absolutely. It did. <clears throat> yeah, it had little to do with BL. And I think it was Bob Knight, you know, made sure that um, Jaguar stayed separate, although it was classed as BL a large plant number three or something like that. I can't remember which number it was now, but no, it worked under John Egan um, as a small car plant. And uh, as I say, we went out in cars. We had, you know, uh, made decisions. John Egan, I'd admire John Egan for what he did because it needed fresh eyes to come in. Mm. You know, because Jaguar, the engineering was first class. But in terms of you know what we call about reliability durability i think <clears throat> i think sir william i mean i wasn't there but I, I get the feeling that it was a throwback to the 50s and the 60s where i think the impression is well if you can afford a jag if it goes wrong then take it to the dealer now that had to change and the japanese showed us the way because they could see british cars are unreliable and to be fair to john egan he came in and said that is the number one problem and he was he was right and it sort of, I was lucky to come in at a point just before John Egan that there was this push for quality and that's what we did and John Egan I don't think he was particularly you know, a car man in knowing the detail but he trusted his people like Field and, and uh, Randall who were car people and you know he, he said, you know, he led the way and then um, you know, all the problems that we had were starting you know, to get worked upon. So he did a good job. A clear change in culture where John Egan arrives, and as you describe, your department sort of went from a tiny little office that no one really knew where it was into being more central to the company. That was a real indication, I guess, of John Egan's influence at the time. Yeah, well, how bad it was, there were no procedures and work instructions for all of the departments under fielding. And so... I worked with um, Peter Taylor on press cars. He, you know, we knocked up a procedure of, you know, what does he do? How does it work? Same with uh, Keith Gamage on the limousine and um, Jonathan, I think, on SQI. 
But the, the big one from my point, which was basically my job, was to get some uh, structure and discipline into how we're going to sign off these cards. I don't know what they did before. I think it might have been an ad hoc, you know, is this car ready? But we needed, we needed to get some structure and discipline in. And I put together what was called an EQMS sign-off procedure. So I did the procedures, but it was based on, interestingly enough, a BL procedure, which were called Management Policy Instructions, MPI, yeah, the MPI number. We tailored it to uh, Jaguar, EQMS 1, 2, 3, and 4, you know, from the earliest stages where all of the directors, that was Randall from Engineering, Quality were ourselves, obviously, Manufacturing and Sales and Marketing. That was the EQMS sign-off. So they had to buy in to the stage we were at from as the design being settled with engineering, that's EQMS1, can we go into pre-production then? And then we build the uh, pre-production cars, assess the cars, see where we are. I do a report, this is where we are on the quality, this is what needs improved. And, you know, we go through the different uh, pre-production SDV stages until um, EQMS2, 3 and 4, which takes us into pilot build and then full volume at EQMS4, basically, coming on to volume production. But, you know, that procedure, we had to get, as I say, some structure down in saying, who's done the validation? Engineering, have you validated? What, what have you done? Have you done mileage? What have you done rig testing? Have you done this? Have you got all the drawings? You know, are there any concessions and deviations from you know, the parts that have been supplied, and there were lots usually, uh, as all the parts being sample approved, purchasing, and then um, manufacturing, have you got facilities ready for any new, um, you know, facelifts and so on, or new models like XJ40. And then um, ourselves, which was really the, the customer view of the car, and we gradually improved that car through the stages until we got, no car was ever perfect. We, we always had problems, but uh, you know, you, you can never, if you like, sell a car if you want it to be perfect. So, you know, we have to accept some shortcomings if you like, but eventually we get to an EQMS4, full side off, let's go into production now. And that's the way it worked. And, you know, it was a, a really good procedure, which I believe it's possibly still going today. I don't know because I've been, I've been gone, you know, quite a few years now. And what was the vehicle life that you were working to at that time? Was there a set vehicle life they had in mind? And, and was that consistent across all the models at the time? Well, we, we looked at it from the, the general view on a luxury car was we should be able to do 150,000 miles in 12 years life. That was uh, probably today you'd probably say we want to do more than that. But at that time, you know, we had to go somewhere and to remember Jaguar cars weren't the most reliable at that time. So if we could get 150,000 mile and 12 year life, you know, it was a good thing to aim for. And, um, you know, all of these, it was all progressive through the 80s to try and improve, you know, um, through rig testing and so on. Because... Um, uh, the story, the big story from when I did rig testing Triumph, 
you know, one, one of the chief engineers at Jaguar, we had really big warranty problems on the Berlin Aerial. Uh, it's an expensive item and it was unreliable. And I did ask the chief engineer, well, how many have you tested? And, well, he said three. And I thought, well, that's not enough. You can't do a wireball analysis on three, a sample of three. But it was worse than that because I said, well, how many passed the test? And he said, well, none. And we're still, <laughs> we're still fitting this thing. So, um, you know, it had a long way to come. And I, I think it was just the culture from the 50s and the 60s. And I don't, I don't know because I wasn't there. But things had to change. John Egan. Um, said, I want the top warranty problems, both cost and incident. You can have high cost but low incidence, obviously, and you can have high incidence and low cost. But you you looked at the whole thing together. Obviously, the aerial was one, but we ended up with 210 problems. It was called a 210 problem list. Wow. And he got all his directors to go to the supplier. I think he went to Lucas himself that was letting us down or had West for steering field. It might be easily. He went to somewhere else. So there were seedy people we did say to the supplier, this is because John Egan, you know, said this is what we're going to do. You don't get that warranty, Dan. You're going to be paying more than, uh, it might have been 1%, 1.5% or something. Um, and, you know, they had to book up the ideas. That's the point. And mm. So John Egan, that fresh eyes was really what got Jaguar going again because we had two good products there. You know, the Series 3 XJ in particular just needed it was a beautiful car. And the other thing we used to do, we would compare them with the opposition, the BMs and the Mercedes, big cars. And um, when I drove those cars, I think, God, you know, if we were reliable on this car, it's just so much nicer than the competition at that time. You know, in terms of refinement, in terms of ride, and all those things that made that car so nice. And, uh, you know, it lasted till, uh, well, 92, of course, in the V12, or 86 on the 4.2. Mm-hmm. Well, one of those cars I know that you tested and sort of aspired to in a way, although I know you found some flaws even with that, was the Lexus LS400 in the late 80s, wasn't it? Beautiful car in terms of what it could do in terms of refinement. It's something we aspired to in terms of, you know, Jaguar was about refinement and luxury. And when I talk about that, I'm talking about, you know, not just the engine smoothness, not just the gearbox smoothness and shift quality, which were big things that we I worked on with the engineers to try and get our cars like that. But switch gear, uh, feature level, and opening and closing of doors, and all of the things, you know, that you aspire to to make a, a luxury car. It, it was let down slightly by its ride and handling. It wasn't as good as ours, and I think also by the body style, because it, it looked a bit tank-like to me. I think we had nicer, sleeker cars, but in terms of its engineering and, you know, the the way it uh, performed, yes, it was just exceptional. I think that was about 1989 at that point. Let's go a little bit earlier into the 1980s and an interesting story that I know you can tell us about the issues that you found with the AJ6 engines introduction and how you pretty much single-handedly, by flagging up issues, delayed the production of XJ57. <laughs> tell us the story behind this. Yeah, yeah. well, uh, I sort of think I made my name in the company then because um, I could be quite stubborn if I felt I was right and, and I knew I was right on this. 
We we have some SDVs on the new AJ6 engine, Trevor Crisp, the group chairman, chief engineer and designed it, and it was a solid old engine, a big lump, big long engine. But we put it in the XJS, XJ57 and Cabriolet 58, and it was, I'm afraid, it was in terms of NVH, it was so, so bad, and, um, you know, I was testing every car, actually, because it had got so bad, but before all that, I'd said to David Finn, look, I've tried these cars, and there's no way we can sell these. It's, you know, we've got a beautiful V12 engine and um, and the XK, both smooth engines, so we've come out with this AJ6 engine in the car installation. So, so bad it was. And I took him out in, um, I don't know why, but every time, it, it, it all seemed to be gold cars that were particularly bad, but anyway, that's just me, I think. Um, it was actually a gold car, and I said, they've got to come out in this car, I'll take you out, down Brown Lake, and you'll see how bad it is. Well, we got in the car, I don't know how far we got, because you could drive around Brown Lane internally, but we certainly didn't get to the gate. He said, stop, we're, going, we're not going any further, take me back. What? Now, what that meant was, what that meant is he supported me then, had his big support. Because hmm. we knew there would be a fight for manufacturing, um, you know, tend to want to produce cars, yeah, whereas we seem to want to produce a bit of quality and we're holding them back. Hmm. Right. So we reported this. Field didn't back me up. Not good enough. So the, the decision was taken. We're going to have to test every car. We wanted manufacturing, which was road test, we did test every car, by the way, in any way, but they had to do an assessment as well. And we had to have nightly meetings, at the end of the day meetings, with a guy called Ivan Thomas, who worked for Mike Beasley. And we had the reports and the results, and Trevor was involved, Jim Randall. And there were balancing the engines, and then eventually they were getting balance readings to see what was good and what was bad. But, you know... Every single car, I mean, I was rejecting about 70, 80% of cars. It was so, so bad. Even manufacturing road tests were rejecting about 50%. So we were having these nightly meetings. Didn't seem to be getting any better. So I think, um, I don't know how long they went on for, two, three, or maybe four weeks, if that. And Mike Beasley took over because it was so bad. We were just saying, we're going to reject all these cars. Well, Mike Beasley took over from Ireland Thomas. And I tell you, within... I think two or three days I was kept reporting the, this to be fair to Mike Beasley good company man was Mike um, sadly died recently but Mike Beasley in three days got hold of Radford Jack Randall which it was him then at that time Jack Randall is the, was the um, building the engines over at Radford he was a director over there he said stop stop building engines because all we're going to do is build scrap cars hmm. so Mike Beasley took that decision in about three days from memory and it was decisive I was there at the meeting at the meeting said that's enough and he rang him up there and then stopped the build and that's what happened and John Egan would support his people so he, he realised that and we had to delay the build of XJS what was the XJS with that engine and I think it could have been three months you know until they got that engine right and uh, or at least improved and that's what happened Wow. And what was the answer in the end? What had gone so wrong? Well, uh, in my view, it was never really 
um, that smooth an engine, whether it was because of the length of the, you know, the crankshaft, for example. I think the crankshaft used to bend. And you, they, they improved the tolerances on, on balancing and so on. But, you know, the biggest, one of the biggest things, engineering, we're, this gear lever was, was quite um, rigid in, in the body. And somebody decided to let it flow free at the back end. Now, what that meant to the gear lever, if you look at a, a 3.6 XGS, the gear lever goes up and down. Mm. It sort of floats, doesn't in, it? In the car. That made a massive difference. And uh, oh, God, we're getting somewhere. And I, I tried that car. Uh, we got Jim Randall up, took him out. I took Jim Randall out in that car. And he said, oh, God, uh, we're, we're actually getting somewhere. That's a relief. So. That was really the, the big turning point. It was a number of things apart from the balance, tolerance and so on. But that gearbox mounted, once we floated it, it just gave it enough refinement. Um, we thought, well, yeah, we can we can sell this car. And, and that was that was the big thing in my view that uh, allowed us to progress then. And, uh, of course, it went into XJ40 later on. Mm, amazing. And there's loads of XJS listeners listening to this going ah so that's why my gear stick floats about <laughs> it's a characteristic of the car that we've all got used to all of these years and it's something that we all celebrate about them but there well, you go now you've heard helped. the story as it to why the certainly helped the NBA, tell you that. and there were lots of xjs development uh, moments weren't there because when you arrived at jaguar in january 1980 it really wasn't selling well. And on the one hand, there'd been the success with the TWR cars, bringing them to prominence in the European Touring Car Championship. That's all great. But also, there were significant changes on the engineering quality front that you'd done to that car just to make it a better product, really, all round, hadn't there? Yeah, I mean, uh, I remember, I think production had stopped. We were selling so few XGSs when I joined I think production had actually stopped at the XPS. We had, they were just building up, and so they had to stop production. Now, what we were doing then was to bring in what was called the 81 model year, which we built from the quarter four of 1980, right about August of 1980. We have the development cars for the pre-production models from about May, June, July, in that period. So um, the, we, we put extra um, veneer you know, where it was black before. It was just um, maybe a bit cheap looking inside, the bumpers, lights and various things. But the big thing was the HE engine, the Swiss fireball engine. And, um, you know, that was a big selling point. I mean, instead of 12 to 14, I suppose we were looking at <laughs> probably 15 to, you know, 16, 17. I don't, I don't know if you get to 18, but let's say 15 to 16. But it was enough on the sales side. That may had this is uh, so this is late nineteen eighty build, and the veneer and the various changes just up that XGS into really what was more of a luxury Grand Tourer then, and uh, it started selling again. Mm -hmm. And um, that was obviously before the three point six went in. There, the three point six helped it further because of the smaller engine, and then the cabriolet, you know, in eighty three, eighty four, and so on. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it started selling again. Not in big quantities, but it's sold. Mm. And then, of course, you get to use that Triumph experience of yours again and the experience that you had with rig testing, as you mentioned a little bit earlier on, in the development of the XJ40. And one of the 
elements of that development project was about preventing corrosion, wasn't it? And almost pioneering, for Jaguar at least, the use of zinc coatings on the panels. Yeah, well, the Series 3 XJ and the XJS were both did tend to rust, yeah. Um, and again, John Egan, it was John Egan's, uh, you know, he, he, he said, let's build some with zinc-coated panels. Now, this is 1980-81 on the um, XJ Series 3. So we did about 12 cars, which were given to the reps. Various panels were put zinc-coated. The reps were doing high miles. And, um, you know, that was to try and improve the corrosion resistance. Um, I don't think we introduced all of the, you know, the, the panels in there at that time. But again, it was a John Egan initiative to say, you know, how can we improve this car? And he pushed, you know, the engineers, well, you know, give us something. You know, we, we would do um, the Canadian accelerated corrosion test over at Gaiden surprisingly to BL technology as it was then hmm. and they could rust a car with salt and damp humidity in a matter of weeks and you know it was an accelerated corrosion test so we did that on the series 3 and the XGS to see where the corrosion points were the reps were also reporting from the dealers this is where it rusts and so on so yeah there was a push then to try and improve corrosion resistance of our cars and um, as I say thank john john egan for that mm-hmm. you know of course the xj40 uh much maligned at times by the press but actually a really strong car as it went through production wasn't it and the improvements as it headed into the 1990s took such great strides that by the time sort of last of the cars rolled out in 1993 they were they were a really strong proposition you know at that time um it was too too much too too far um, to do a completely new car, it was it was Jim Randall wanted to do a completely different car to the Series Three, and its characteristics were completely different. They like chalk and cheese, you know. wasn't the most reliable car in its early days. Um, you know, eventually, um, you know that car has got to leave the factory. Otherwise, you know, a lot of money's been spent, and you know we improved it. You know, significantly in the later 80s through um, facelifts. We had the 1990 model year, improved it a bit. We had three, X300, uh, 1993, I think, or thereabouts. That was another step up. Um, but for me, the um, car didn't come of age till 10 years later in, well, in 1997 when we did what was called the X308. I mean, a lot of it was based on the you know, the XJ40, if you like, the underpinnings. But with the V8 engine that came in and the five-speed ZF transmission, it transformed the car. Mm-hmm. And I think it was the car I would have liked XJ40 to be in 1986, to be truthful. But, um, yeah, it was, as I say, it was a, I think it was just a step too far, XJ40. It really was. Mm-hmm. As you know, everything was different. There might have been there might have been one bolt different that was carried over. There was something that was carried over from Series Three. I forget what it is now. Somebody might be able to tell us, but I think there was one component. You know, interesting that the X three hundred, of course, and the three hundred eight, as you say, that sort of refined that line of vehicles. 
all fell under the Ford ownership era. So from your point of view working there at the time, when Ford took over in 89, I think it was, um, how did that change yeah. your day-to-day life <clears throat> and the culture that then was in the company for you? Yeah, I mean, what Ford gave us was the finance to change things, you know, the tracks, introduce new models. You know, we had um, S-Type in 1998, I think. We had, you know, the XK8 in... 96, 97, and so on. So the modernized things, I mean, people say they improved the quality, but no, my personal view is that they didn't know what Jaguar quality was about. We were about <clears throat> refined luxury. And yeah, I'm not going to criticize Ford because they kept Jaguar running. But at the end of the day, we couldn't, we couldn't be agile in the same way we were in the 80s as a small company, right? Making decisions there and then. And it had to go through so many levels of management at Dearborn. I mean, to be fair, they um, they gave us free reign really to decide. I was still decided on quality standards right through the Ford era. I was still doing reports of the cars in the same way. Um, And they supported us. I'll say that it just wasn't quite as agile to get the changes through. But yes, they supported us. They gave us the finance. We brought out S type, X type, and so on. And you know, beyond X three hundred eight, we had X three fifty, really nice competitive car, as good as any of the competition at the time. You know, so that mm-hmm. was all under Ford ownership. Mm-hmm. You know, so they were good for Jaguar, mm-hmm. even if the working wasn't quite wasn't quite. Um, wasn't quite the same as a small company then, that's mm. all I'd say, yeah. A name that crops up throughout our conversation has been David Fielden, and, and obviously you you sort of look back on your working relationship with him with some fondness, so tell us about him. What sort of a man was he like to work with and for, and, and how did that relationship work over those years? Yeah, well, he was a bit of the old school, was David Fielden. Um, <laughs> I think... Because I think I was I had a little bit of a cynicism in my in my makeup, and they didn't like that uh, initially. But um, once I showed him I can assess cars and give him the quality, you know, my my mantra was always I want to satisfy the top ten percent of critical customers. You know, we're going to look at the competition, what do they do, and I want our standards to be at least as good as them and aim for the most critical customers. So when I was affecting cars and reporting to him, he realized I could do that job. And then uh, I think after about 12 or 18 months, he sort of, I think he forgave my cynicism and, um, you know, we got to know each other pretty well. And um, I think he he did respect what I did. And I had that support behind me because um, he was basically uh, on the board next to John Egan. So I'm reporting to him on this is the where we are on the cars. He was supporting me most times. Uh, I always used to say I'm right, but he wouldn't He wouldn't let me get away with that. Said, well, you're, you're mostly right. And um, uh, another thing, and he was a good engineer, a really good engineer. He understood Jaguar as well. You know, it was a, it was a loss to the company. And um, one of the other things I used to do is uh, the monthly board report with him. So um, every single month we had to go. I had to go around to Bradford, the plant quality manager, and 
um, Roger Cooper, plant uh, quality at uh, Brown's Line and um, Cassenbrom and so on. Daimler Limousine and Peter Taylor at Press Cars and pull all this together. So what have you done this this month? John Egan, this is going to the board. How's the quality doing? So we had an audit department then. Where's the quality? And so on. So every month we were reporting on this. And there were so many inputs because his remit was so wide, David Felix. Um, you know, I think they said, well, who's going to look after limousine? And I think John Egan said, well, you'll have to do it to, uh, to Feely. And I'm assuming that's what he said. Because... I think a normal company quality wouldn't be looking at press cars and limousines. Mm. Um, and mainly it would be the, the quality of that. Anyway, we were doing this board report. I pull it all together uh, in draft form. and We have to cut it down by about a half. And uh, it used to take his ages. And in, in those days, in our computers, so we had a secretary there who was tipexing changes and this, that and the other. And... He used to say to me, why does it take us two weeks to do a board report? Because almost by the time we've done that board report, we're almost due to get the next one. <laughs> and he would say, Roger Putnam in sales, he can do it in two or three days. Why does it take us so long? But, um, you know, I was working closely with him. And at that time, we started at 8.25. It was a funny time to start for staff, but that's what it was. But he would come in early and he said, look, if I make the coffee, will you come in at 8 o'clock? Well, I didn't live too far away from around. I said, yes, all right, I'll come in. And he had the coffee ready for me. And, um, you know, that's the way we worked. So I had a lot to do with it. And uh, once when he came out in the car, he said, because uh, he, he used to live on black coffee and cigars. That was his day. <laughs> Occasionally he'd bring in a pork pie from Leicestershire where he lived, pork farms. <laughs> And the mistake I made was, because he said, oh, do you want some? And I did, at the time, I didn't, and I no thanks. And he said, well, that's the last one, oh, that's the last thing I'll offer you. Um, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't, um, uh, if you like, that generous with his uh, offerings of money or um, anything like that. So if you, he, he took it as an offence, well, well, I don't often offer people to think, only my friends. And if you don't want it, well, that's the last I'm going to offer. <laughs> that was your one <laughs> chance. <laughs> well, the other thing, uh, we did have a, I think it was a collection for cancer or some such, uh, you know, thing that came round. And if, if we were sitting, I don't know if we were doing the board report, but I was sitting with him in the boardroom. Well, I thought we were. And he said, oh, well, I'm not giving, uh, if Rooney, me, uh, if Rooney gives something, I will give something. So, you know, um, but he was quite jovial in that sense. And, you know, he was a confident man. He knew his stuff. Um, and he he would stand his ground. And because he had the knowledge of engineering, he could go to John Egan's meeting and um, speak with authority. And like I say, I, I um, sent that note to John Egan and he did come back and he said he respected him highly. And he said, I, I'm not surprised you like working with him. But you know he didn't, you know he didn't suffer fools gladly. So you had to do your stuff, and you had to be, you know, good enough for him. You know he knew his stuff. But when you know when um, Bill Hayden came, mm. he was the only man that he was frightened of, and that isn't the way it should be because um, he would say to me, "What's he going to ask me?" <laughs> and so when you go through all of the things of the quality of the car or this, that and the other and we'd fill out two sides of an A4 
page for his back pocket to take to Bill Hayden meetings. And he was the only man he was ever nervous of. And I remember him before the meetings, you know, he was he was on edge to go, whereas with everybody else, he was highly confident. You know, a good man. He, he left in when Ford came, 89, 90, as they all did. You know, Jim Randall, he went as well. Mm. But yeah, um, you know, that was when, as I said, Ford took over. And um, then he left. Yeah, 1990, possibly. Well, another legend of those days was, of course, the man who went from the drawing office at Jaguar up to technical assistant to the managing director, one Bob Knight. And you ended up owning a couple of his cars. Tell us how that happened. It's interesting. This when you, you're reminding me about all of these things. The Jaguar in that short time, it's a relatively short time, but um, I, I didn't know Bob Knight personally. Um, he was leaving. Um soon after I joined hmm. but um, a guy um, who worked in our department um, Howard Snow um, it knew him intimately in terms of uh, Bob Knight had no family and in his later days um, Howard would take him out for lunch and he had been his PA in I think it was the 1970s he'd been his personal assistant Howard so he knew him well, kept in contact with him. Howard knew I was into Series 3s. And um, when he died, and Howard was still in contact with him at that time, Howard just said the you know, the, the uh, valuers had been into his place. He had no family to give his um, you know, bungalow and one and three-quarter acres, I think, of the Westwood Heath. Um, I think it all went to the government in the end. because He didn't leave a will, to my knowledge. But uh, he had two cars. Um, he had a 1980 Daimler Sovereign 4.2 in Rogium Silver, which he uh, had when he left the company. And he had a Daimler Vanden Plaar V12, which was used in the car magazine comparison with a Rolls-Royce and I think BM and Mercedes top-line cars. Um, and that was in Kingfisher Blue. So the, when they came in to look at his, you know, assets, if you like, they reported, well, the cars haven't moved for nine months. They're of no value. Howard found that out, got hold of me. He said, I know somebody who might want them. He talked to me, and I said, yes. Yes, I'll go down and have a look at them. And, um, yeah, the, the, the Daimler Sovereign, which I was interested in, because it was a 4.2, um, like my own, um, I tried to start it, but it seemed as solid as anything. But um, eventually, I went down the next day and got a hammer on the starter motor, gave it a few taps, got my battery fully charged, and off she went. And I took it home. So I got his name, the Sovereign 4.2, the uh, Kingfisher one, uh, the V12, which the body needed some work, interior was very nice. Um, I gave it away because I didn't want it. I didn't have the room at my house and I gave it away. The, coming back to the rhodium silver one, um, I've had the back axle. My, the axle in my Series 3 was noisy, so I drove Bob Knight's car and it was a nice, quiet axle, rear suspension. I had one damper leaking. So I took the whole rear suspension out with the axle 
and had it put in my car. So um, the Series 3 that I've got has um, uh, his rear suspension complete with the accident. And there were one or two other bits I took away from it. And then uh, the engine had done 157,000 miles, but it was still running well. Um, and I gave it away, scrapped it out. Basically, that's what happened. But again, if we know today, because it was owned by Bob Knight, you know the history of it, I guess it would have been worth something. At mm. that time, I felt they weren't worth anything. Mm. And uh, I was giving the stuff away or scrapping them out. You never know, it might well appear again at the place you volunteer at, which is, of course, the Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust, our friends over at the building next to the British Motor Museum at Gaydon. And although you might have retired from Jaguar in 2004, you're very much still around the Jaguar brand through your voluntary work there, aren't you? Yeah, that's right. So I uh, do some work in the workshop and we play around with the cars and, uh, you know, do bits and pieces on them and uh, I never worked on e-types in the you know in my youth or any other time but uh, they're, they're not so easy to work on <laughs> we've retrimmed them we've done oh uh, lots of jobs on you know there's so little room on an e-type and they're all different and nothing seems to fit but uh, it's interesting working on an e-type to um, you know do those jobs and I find it interesting and of course all the other cars are there I was I drove the SS100 last weekend at uh, the centenary at the Coventry Transport Museum that's the red SS100 that we've got and it's it's interesting you know driving these old cars I find them far more interesting than the modern stuff mm. and uh, yeah that's where that's where I still do down at uh, the heritage with Tony Merrigal. It's great that Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust get those cars out and we get to see them moving. They're not just behind a velvet rope in a museum somewhere. And of course, we're looking forward to seeing another selection of JDHT cars joining us at Newby Hall for the Summer Jaguar Festival this coming August, or the 14th, in fact, at Newby Hall in North Yorkshire. So, of course, uh, a huge selection of cars being a part of our moving motor show that's taking place at the Summer Jaguar Festival. Festival, 14th of August 2022. If you haven't got your tickets yet, you can get them at jc.org.uk. And big thanks to the Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust for bringing those cars along and showing us the heritage and the history in this, the centenary year of the start of Swallow Sidecars, of course, so that we can experience the history, smell it, hear it, see it moving. That's what surely these cars are all about. And uh, as you look back on, on your career, as you look back on those wonderful years at Jaguar, uh, David, um, what is the bit of that career working for Jaguar that you're most proud of? Well, um, yeah, it was, a, it was quite a tough job. The, you know, we were always fighting the standard that I wanted to uh, maintain, you know, the highest standards for our cars. I know we couldn't all of us achieve it, but... Um, you know, I stood firm, and I think it's it's that part of it that, um, and particularly with David Fielding and later, we, we didn't give in. We tried to make those cars as good as we could. And I think, um, you know, in 2003, from memory, we had the, you know, the X350, and we had got it from you know, quite low reliability and quality from the customer satisfaction. JD Powers in America, I think we were running about number three, top three, something like that. I think Lexus was always top, but we'd improved 
you know, over a 20-year or so period. And we've got our cars um, to a really good level, you know, competitive level. And I think, um, you know, hopefully um, I was some small part of that, yeah? What do you think Jaguar themselves should have done differently when you look back on those years? If you could go back and talk to Sir John Egan as he was in 1980 when you arrived, what advice from the future would you give him? Well, um, I think he did what was the, he did the thing, you know, get quality number one. That was always running through it. I mean, um, you know, right now, I don't agree with going back to, I think, uh, Ballora is going back to small volumes. I think we've overstretched. I think Speth, um, Ralph Speth tried to do too many cars. I think Ballora is doing too few cars. And I think, um, you know, something of the 100,000 to 200,000, not, not more than a quarter of a million cars, maybe, is what we should be aiming for. We were doing something like 50,000 when the XJ40 was around and a bit more than that with the further models. But, you know, I'm not going to give John Eager any advice or what he should do. I think he did. He, he spotted the, the weakness. And it was, you know, we happened. I was lucky to be in the quality department at, the, at that time. And, you know, it was a exciting and rewarding time to work for Jaguar through that period. I think it's fair to say... 1980 to sort of 1990 was a pivotal moment in Jaguar's history, wasn't it? Did it feel like that at the time? I think we were too busy to think about it because at the time you're so involved in trying to improve the quality. You're not thinking, uh, oh, when you look back, yes, I think you're right. You know, John Egan was the man. That was a big thing. It changed and he made Jaguar survive. So when we look back, we can see that. But at the time, you're just working, you know, with one one thought in trying to improve these cars mm-hmm. because you're in you're in it you're in amongst it at the time you're involved in it. Well, thank you so much for coming and sharing your stories with us here on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. A big thank you to David Rooney. David, thank you very much. You're welcome, Wayne. Thanks. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Tom's Jaguar Racing Diary. Sharing the knowledge, drama and innovation from behind the scenes of the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club Race Championship. Well, on this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, we're not hearing from Tom Robinson from Swallows Jaguar, but instead another member of the Swallows Racing Team. Matthew Davis updates us on his season so far. Well, it's 2022 and it's a new season and uh, it's time to bring you up to date. So um, I'm sitting here in Alton Park and um, so far I've raced at Silverstone and uh, that's the only Jaguar Challenge I've been able to get to. Then two weekends ago, I was up in Anglesey um, with the Classic Sports Car Club in the Modern Classics series. So I'll quickly fill you in on what happened there. So Silverstone was fantastic. Lovely day, bit chilly, bit of fog came down, but it cleared. We were there with the Super Tourings, so some epic cars around us. And Swallows unveiled their magnificent trailer. So we had, um, we looked like the proper serious race team. Colin was there with his grill. 
and uh, full marks out for Collins Fat Larry's Large Shack I think he calls it unbelievable food for all of us and then eventually we got around to some qualifying so I qualified 32nd out of 38 we were in a mixed grid with the pre-93s um, and then in the first race I think I finished 29th so worked my way up a bit got past Andrew who's new racing with Swallows this year lovely chap he's in Mike Seaborn's old XJ40 and um, went out for the second race and I, I just am kicking myself still when I look back on it I got a great start pulled away really nice I was in the thick of it then I missed my gear oh dear coming to the top of the straight totally missed the gear and about six cars went around me and then when they've gone you just don't mind them in it is so difficult so I was trying really really hard got Andrew back and was trying to hunt down Damien who's a good friend of mine who's started racing an XJ40 this year so if you see him in in the Bex livery Formula 1 livery car that's that's Damien and I was chasing him and then lost it at club uh, really embarrassing just tried to take too much through there ended up in the gravel and it was really close to the end of the race so they had to come and pull me out of the gravel and red flag it and that was the end of the race so um, sorry everyone but at least I didn't burst into frames this year so that was Silverstone then we went up to Anglesey and Anglesey is really special to me I um, used to work on the island for nearly 15 years and, um, and me and my brother used to do track days up there back with, um, before in the old circuit before they reconfigured the circuit so it's a place I absolutely love going to um, and um, we went up to join the Classic Sports Car Club and they were doing their Modern Classic Series so qualified into the Modern Classic Series uh, I was sharing a car with my friend Damien we just took the one car up and loads of the Swallows lads came up um, we had a house full uh, up in Triada Bay and um, we uh, qualifying wasn't bad I think we qualified 17th or something like that so we, we had a decent run and um, and then a really interesting paddock of cars we're in with Marcos those are beautiful Marcos Ginettas 911 RSR um, some super quick TVRs B46 BMs everything was in there so it's a really interesting grid even a little metro god bless it um, anyway so we did a 30 minute swap a race and, and that's where we um, I think we came in about 15th at the end 17th on that one and then second race um, I let Damien start then we had a safety car so Damien came in we swapped over so I trundled around behind the safety car for a while then at the end um, we were running 15th we were doing really well we got up to a good spot and I was just coming at the end of the the really fast section where you're up to guys about 160 70 kilometers an hour there really really quick and you're coming up to a complex called rocket which is uh you kind of go out right then take a really tight left-hander and just as i was coming into the right hand side two uh little janettas got up inside me and i only saw one of them so i thought one was through and was turning into the corner just saw it in the corner of my eye the second blue car got out of it and then spun and just did a magnificent pirouette um, across the grass, fragmented the uh, marker board and luckily came to halt just before the uh, marshal's post and uh, got the car going again but we clearly we'd ripped the exhaust off the manifold. It sounded like a, a landing craft from a sort of 1940s World War II movie. It's absolutely awful. So I took it into the pits and basically we retired it. Um, but 
lovely to be at Anglesey, lovely to get the old Jag going. But what was great was we really sorted out, we got new AVO shocks on it and finally got that set up right. So I'm looking forward to the next one, which is Alton which was um, hopefully the car being good nick. After those first two rounds, we caught up again with Matthew Davis at Alton Park. Right, I've calmed down now. That was brilliant. That was um, a really exciting race. So there I was in a really, my best ever qualifying position. I was 15th. And I've got this thing now. I reckon the supercharged cars are best starting in second putting a ton of revs in and then just balancing the, the clutch so you just keep it on wheel spin and go and anyway, I tried that and off she went I fired up the inside got inside started getting through people in the first corner all hell broke out and there were cars all over the place and I managed to wibble through and um, after the first lap I had Derek spin in front of me and I just made my way through and I was up into 11th and that's my best ever position in the Jaguar Challenge. And I, I was doing really, really well, really going for it. And um, unfortunately, later in the race, I, I, I think it must have been about five or six minutes up in that position, that Andrew Harper in the um, great big diesel, um, XJ Diesel uh, 350 came and just got through me. And I was a bit gutter to let him go. Um, but got my head down and saw Jack ahead of me in the other Swallows car, the SJ40 that I borrowed for two rounds last year, which Jack's really set up well and he's going really well in it. And I saw Jack and I thought, right, I've got to try and get Jack. So I'm piling off after Jack. And um, just as I um, came out on the sort of lake corner at Alton, just stepped out into the grass and off I went, uh, lawn mowing again. This is becoming a bit of a habit. And I bounced over some bumps and uh, punched the exhaust up and it knocked a lambda sensor off. And then the car wouldn't rev past four and a half thousand. So I kind of limped my way around. I thought, well, let's just keep going, see if I can get a finish. Anyway, after a couple of laps, it was clear that, that the revs dropped back and back and back and I was losing power. So I pulled it over at the marshal's post and um, reversed into a sort of safe space. And um, it was a bit gutting because it was an amazing race. There was some brilliant action. I, I don't think I've ever seen the, um, I'm a sailor, I keep wanting to call it fleet. It's not a fleet. I've never seen the, the group of cars so close. I don't think anyone got lapped. It was really tight all the way through. Great battles at every level. Um, go and have a look at the footage on YouTube of the BRC because it's absolutely brilliant to watch. Anyway, Tom got ahead. He and James had an epic, epic battle up front. Um, so it was, it was dead exciting, and I was really gutted to uh, not finish. But um, there's always a silver lining, and it turns out that the um, the marshals were all JEC members, really nice blokes. So I had a good chat with them, and they looked after me. And um, I thought, right, got to get it back and um, get it, get ready for the next race. So. Um, We'll go and see if we can get the car fixed up and I'll come back and tell you how the next race goes. Wow. <laughs> what a day it's been at Alden. Absolutely incredible. So um, I had to start uh, two off the back of the grid, obviously because I retired, and uh, did my maximizer supercharger burn-off type of start and got going really nicely again and managed to work my way up, um, up a few places, 
Um, but unfortunately, Rick Walker had an absolutely epic crash. He just came off on the second corner. I think he just put too much power into it. And the back end went round and he um, smashed into the armco. And I'm afraid his lovely, you will have seen it, it's the bright green um, XJS, the, the sort of lovely metallic green, back screen, is really beaten up. So that, that meant we had a really long um, sort of not quite safety car, but we had to spend a long time going round and round until they reformed us up uh, for the restart. And then we, we spent a very long time on the grid waiting for the restart. And my poor old girl just got warmer and warmer and warmer. And um, when we restarted, uh, just, she just wasn't running right, wasn't any wasn't any of the power in it that I was hoping for so I had a good old crack at it but I was just not catching anyone and um, I'm afraid it's another Matthew I finished second last or something story it wasn't very exciting which is annoying now because I feel like we've got the car really well set up and um, I'm really getting the hang of um, getting in amongst it and mixing it which is the whole idea of it um, so when you're down on power. It's really disappointing, even in an overpowered thing like mine. But it just just sort of faded. So um, Dan and the Swallows, who's you know really takes care of the cars, there's our racing guru. We had a good look over it, and I think we've uh, unfortunately done a head gasket. There was a very nasty sort of emulsion in the water. So I think there's a bit of work to do before the next round at Thruxton. Uh, which is famous as being a power circuit. So I'm really looking forward to racing there. And that's in July, uh, early July. So just calming down from today. It's been fantastic at Alton. Hello, Ian and everyone from uh, the XJS register. It was good to see you at Alton. And um, yeah, look at it on, on YouTube. It was another epic day. Um, nice to see the top three mix it up and get some different results in. So um I've really, really enjoyed today. Right, time for a wind down. That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JEC podcast via www.jecpodcast.com and you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages. Don't forget, you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right-hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits plus the fantastic, glossy, 130-page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.